Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, Bigfoot, the legend lives. No mythical monster or legend has ever dominated the media and the imagination as thoroughly as Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, as many prefer to call him. He is a worldwide legend and one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of our time. In North America, particularly the Northwest U.S. and Southwest Canadian wildernesses, there are more than 60 names for Sasquatch. Many of these names can be broken down in English to mean the wild man of the woods. Back in the 1920s, Canadian journalist J.W. Burns took the name Sesquack from the Salish Indians in the region surrounding Vancouver and the Fraser Valley and pronounced it Sasquatch. And that name is still with us today. Written reports dating back to the 1800s named the creature as being anywhere from 5 to 10 feet high, with square, massive shoulders and arms of great length, and, of course, covered with hair. It wasn't until the late 1950s that Bigfoot became an overnight media phenomenon in the U.S. when a logger named Jerry Crew discovered 16-inch footprints, made a plaster cast, and showed it to the Humboldt Times. It hadn't been that long since the abominable snowman story had hit the worldwide press, and captured people's imaginations. It had also apparently captured the imagination of science's worst enemy, hoaxsters, one such fraud having the name of Ray Wallace, who had carved wooden feet and had trapped all around that logger site with them, hoping for attention, which he received, and we'll tell his story later on. Bigfoot slash Sasquatch, whichever one you want to call it, has been seen, photographed, caught on videotape, drawn on cave walls, tracked, studied by scientists and researchers, debated upon hotly, been made the subject of a number of proven hoaxes, and been dismissed and debunked by hundreds of skeptics. But his legend, as well as the hunt for him, lives on, and many believe that we will one day catch up with him long enough to classify him officially as a primate, give him a Latin name, turn him loose, and let him live again in peace as a protected species. But for now, we're on the hunt for answers, and the calls and sightings reports just keep coming in. Probably like you, I keep asking the questions, why don't we have a body? Have they collected DNA? And what's the story there? 
Who determines if the plaster cast of a footprint is showing a real print or a fake? Is it possible that every sighting is a misidentification or a hoax? What scientists are working on the Bigfoot phenomenon, and where is that research going? And the final question, is it possible that a race of apes exists in the wilds of North America? Many researchers believe that that is possible. Others are more cautious. The usual response is, show me a cadaver or some fossilized remains, and we'll take it from there. We need evidence. Where is it? Actually, there are definitive answers for all of those questions, and more. And solid evidence exists. Join us today for Bigfoot, The Legend Lives, where we'll discuss the science behind current Bigfoot Sasquatch research, as well as the hoaxes and hype which have clouded the Bigfoot legend. The best place to begin is the story of the Patterson-Gimlin video, which was taken in Northern California in 1967. Those of you who keep up with Sasquatch stories know of this, but it never hurts to refresh the details, as this video is the gold standard for Bigfoot videos, and it has been studied frame by frame by literally hundreds of experts. If you heard that this film was a hoax, think again. Here is the story. You decide. Let me preface this story and all video captures by saying that camera and video pictures and footage of Bigfoot are rare for a number of reasons. Bigfoot is known to be a nocturnal creature. He, they, are very wary of the presence of man and try to avoid contact. They and their tracks have only been seen in very remote wilderness areas. Also, opportunities to capture footage of a Bigfoot in daylight, besides being extremely rare, are short-lived, and the image quality of most commercial video cameras is lacking. But we do have some arguably good pictures and video. Bob Gimlin and Roger Patterson were and are typical of a number of people who work and live in or near America's wilderness areas who have been caught up in the search for Bigfoot. Gimlin was a horse rancher, rodeo rider, and builder in Yakima, Washington. He had a friend named Roger Patterson, who was a Bigfoot agnostic with the attitude of show me, which turned into curiosity after reading an Ivan Sanderson article in 1959 about America's abominable snowman. That curiosity led to his talking with some Yakima tribal elders about their legends, then his heading for Northern California to research Sanderson's article, which led to interviewing locals in that area, which led to his trying to film a documentary, and then led to a number of wilderness trips into the Washington State Mount St. Helens wooded outback with his friend and fellow horseman Bob Gimlin in search of Bigfoot. It's not hard to get hooked on a hobby like finding Bigfoot if you have the time and the resources. And it beats stamp collecting. One trip led to another. They became connected with a network of enthusiasts, and one day they received a tip from a guy named Al Hodgson in Northern California. The tip? New tracks had recently been discovered, and would they like to come down and get some footage? They took two saddle horses and a pack horse, Gimlin's one-ton truck and a horse van, and enough supplies for two weeks. By the time they arrived, however, rains had pretty much wiped out the tracks, although traces of them remained, so they had some trail to follow until it disappeared. What they were looking for is what all Bigfoot trackers look for, an impression in the sand or soft soil that you would expect a 400-pound creature to make. It's deep and well-formed. The footprint can measure 15 inches long and 6 inches wide. The stride distance between footprints can be 42 to 48 inches. That's a yardstick plus another foot. Try it yourself. A big and tall man weighing 260 pounds 
couldn't come close to making the same impressions, and with those long strides between footfalls. It's the little stuff like this that draws you to wanting to know more about these creatures, and not just make your decision based upon an armchair study probably written by a skeptic. Bigfoot creatures are known as bipedal, meaning they stand and move on their legs like we humans do. Judging from sightings, pictures, videos, and plaster casts of their feet, the adult males stand 7 to 8 feet tall on the average. They weigh in the area of 400 pounds, and their feet are devoid of hair on the bottoms. Patterson and Gimlin set up a base camp along Bluff Creek and searched creeks, mountainsides, gullies, and roads for sign. Gimlin later recalled the morning of October 20, 1967, like this. The day we got the film footage, I left early in the morning, and Roger slept in. I just rode out and around. My horse loosened a shoe, and so I came back early to tack the shoe on tighter. About ten, mid-morning or so, I sat around there for a little while because Roger was gone when I got back. Supposedly he had gone down to the creek, Bluff Creek there, and after a while he came back and asked what area I had covered that morning. I told him, and he says, why don't we ride up into this area we'd ridden into before? A desolate type area down a couple of canyons. There's a creek running through it. So we went ahead and fixed lunch, and he said, let's get our gear together so when we ride out, we can stay if we have to, and stay a little bit later into the night if we need to. We packed up the pack horse, and by then it was about midday. They were riding upstream on the right-hand side of Bluff Creek. Roger Patterson was in the lead, followed by Gimlin, who was a horse length or two behind him, with the pack horse in tow. Several miles upstream, they skirted a large fallen tree, its root ball having risen up to the point where it was now blocking the main flow of the creek, diverting it from its normal course. As they rounded that upturned root ball, they saw a log jam from a flood back in 64 that had left a pile of scattered logs from trees that the flood had uprooted, and standing among those logs was a large creature standing about 60 feet to their left. In Gimlin's words, When I first saw it, it was standing, looking straight at us. That's when everything started happening. The horses started jumping around, raising the devil and spooking from this creature. Roger, while well, his horse was rearing up and jumping around. Patterson's horse, which was younger and less experienced than Gimlin's, spun around and tried to backtrack. Patterson was trying to control with one hand while reaching into his saddlebags for his video camera with the other. Gimlin would later say, He always kept that saddlebag ready. It had two straps on it to keep it buckled down. He kept one buckled and one unbuckled so that he could get his camera in the event he needed it in a hurry, and this was the case at that particular time. Patterson slid off his horse with his video camera in hand, and his horse ran off. Gimlin's pack horse broke free and followed in the confusion. Patterson yelled out, Cover me, as he ran across the sandbar, camera at his eye, and filming. With his vision restricted by the viewfinder, he ran into a slightly elevated sandbar and fell to his knees. Gimlin watched all this happening, and saw the creature immediately turn and begin retreating up the sandbar and parallel to the creek bed, and away from Patterson. Gimlin, still mounted, rode across the creek, dismounted, and pulled his .30-06 from its scabbard. He figured that if necessary he could get off a surer shot on foot than on horseback. They always carried rifles when in the mountains, for deer, obviously not for Bigfoot. They had talked about what they would do and agreed that they would never shoot a Bigfoot unless it came after them and any gun carrier knows that, with the exception of a target, you don't point a gun at something you're not going to kill. 
Gimlin stood, rifle in hand, watching the scene unfold, when the reality of what was actually happening struck him. When I saw this thing, it was almost unexplainable how I felt. Is this really happening? Here I am. I've been here. I'm tired. But this thing is real. It's human-like. It's walking upright and doesn't seem to be walking fast. But it's covering the ground quickly. Its walk was extremely graceful, especially for a huge creature like that. I did notice that it brought its knees up fairly high. But I took into consideration that it was a pretty heavy animal, or a pretty heavy creature. I'm not going to call it an animal because I don't believe it is. I thought it was about six and a half foot tall, and I would have guessed it weighed at 250 to 300 pounds. It did have tremendous muscle bulk. It was massive. That was an estimated guess at the time, of course. I'm not used to seeing things like that. I was just guessing weight based on the muscled quarter horses I have. It wasn't as big as a quarter horse, naturally. And the height, because we were up on our horses the first time we saw it, it probably didn't look as tall as it really was. Now the horse I was riding was 16 hands high. One hand is four inches on a horse. My eye level was at about nine feet high, so anything less than nine feet I'd be looking down at. These were Gimlin's first impressions, but later, looking at the impressions the creature had left in the firm sand compared to the footprints left by the horses, his guess of the creature's weight went higher. His horses weighed about 1,300 pounds each, with the weight being distributed among its four feet, leaving about 325 pounds per foot. The big footprints were deeper, placing it, in his estimation, at about 500 pounds or more. I could see the face and eyes, Gimlin later said. The face had a flat-type nose. I can't remember what the lips looked like, except that it did have lips, and I could see its teeth. The eyes were big, not big round eyes like a cow or a horse. The hair on its face was short. I could see the muscles clearly, and that was one of the deciding facts, in my opinion, that this was not a man in a suit. The thighs, the buttocks, the arms and shoulders. You could see the muscles moving clearly beneath the hair. It appeared to be a female, but I've never seen a female creature like that. But the film indicates that it had mammary glands, so we assumed it was a female. They had come across tracks earlier that day, and they both assumed that the tracks were made by a male, a female, and a younger creature. After looking at the film and seeing that this had likely been a female, they realized the possibility that the other two tracks might have been those of her young. The thought that there might be three or more of these creatures here or nearby kept Patterson from trying to follow it on foot as it disappeared further up the river, at first following the sandy shoreline and then moving to gravel where its feet made only scuff marks as they would later discover. But right now it was a matter of trying to rescue their horses, load more film into the camera, and regather their nerves. Then they did follow it on horseback for about a quarter of a mile until they saw that it crossed the creek and went up into the mountains. At that point they gave up following it. The days were short at that time of year, and the only way to continue following it would be on foot. The goal now was to return the film for development and then come back with dogs. They spent the rest of daylight back where they had filmed the creature, first returning to their truck for plaster, and then back to the creek bed, making plaster casts of the footprints. Twenty-five years later, after being maligned by critics and skeptics, and told that they had either hoaxed the event or been victims of a hoax, Gimlin reflected, My impression is that there is a creature, and I don't feel it was a man in a suit. If it had been a man in a suit, 
I don't know how they could have gotten back into that particular area. I've heard this story and thought about it many times. God! At one point, with the film all around and people criticizing, I was almost to the point of not being sure myself. But I've thought about it all these years, and I'm quite sure it wasn't a man in a suit. I saw the face. I saw the expression on its face. With all the muscles on its arms and its legs, I don't know how it could have been a man in a suit. Plus, I never had anything to do with a man in a suit, and if Roger did, how did he know for sure I wouldn't shoot it? At the Willow Creek Bigfoot Symposium, held in 2003, Gimlin was asked if he ever regretted his involvement in the incident. He remarked that he had no regret then, and he had none now. The Patterson-Gimlin film has received the most extensive forensic analysis by anthropologists, zoologists, and film experts of any of the Sasquatch films. They come down on both sides. But the most interesting thing is that the skeptic's most common answer is not a criticism of the film's contents, but rather the answer, they don't exist. Therefore, the event that was filmed was a hoax. The scientists and researchers who can remain open-minded without fearing a loss of status within their community say they aren't ruling out the possibility that a form of ape may well exist in North America. As for the Patterson-Gimlin film, a number of cable TV shows purporting to get to the truth behind the Patterson-Gimlin film featured guests, actually three shows, three different guests, who all said they were the man in the costume in the film. All three offered completely different stories, none of which were possible when you understand what really happened out there. In January 2010, a National Geographic documentary titled American Paranormal, Bigfoot, cleared up the false reports with the underlying science and saved the reputation of the Patterson-Gimlin film. But the damage had been done, and many people still think it was a hoax today. Many people who study it say, this one is legit. As for other good videos, a man named Paul Freeman, a former Forest Service watershed patrolman in southeast Washington state, shot a video of a Sasquatch in 1994. Even though it was taken in broad daylight from a reasonable distance, it has been pretty much overlooked by experts. The film begins with Freeman shooting a line of fresh footprints which lead along a dusty trail next to a pond in the Blue Mountains. At the sound of brush popping nearby, the camera rises up from the footprints and a dark, hair-covered creature emerges from the trees and crosses into view. We can hear Freeman saying a surprised, There he is, as the creature pauses near a snag in the underbrush near a small fir tree. It stands there motionless for a few seconds. Then Freeman tries to reposition himself for a better angle, and soon the creature calmly walks away out of sight. Later, the video was sent, after being transferred to a VHS tape, to a professional videographer for an assessment. Despite the fact that it was shot on an inexpensive analog camcorder and had been transferred to VHS, the footage was digitized and run at different speeds and studied carefully. The result being that the professional said there were no signs of a hoax, and the gait and the apparent mass of the creature all give it a sense of legitimacy. However, in the end, a dark, blurry image of a large animal walking through the trees wasn't going to excite any legitimate Bigfoot researcher. And that's where most videos and pictures leave us. Author Jeff Meldrum, in his excellent book, Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science, explains that great pictures of wild animals are done in controlled conditions. He went on to say that in the case of wolverines, which are nocturnal and extremely wary of humans, only one decent photo of a wolverine in the wild exists. Just one. 
and that makes you think. Were it not for the fact that wolverines are known of and documented, it would not surprise anyone that were it not, that one picture would have been discounted as a fake, or at best an oddball, and we'd still be trying to prove that wolverines really do exist. On Memorial Day of 1996, Lori and Owen Pate shot some Bigfoot video near Chapoka Lake in northern Washington state. It showed a dark figure with a long, sure-footed stride, with apparent breasts, and possibly an infant clinging to its back, ape-style, running for cover along a mountain clearing. There were other eyewitnesses present at the time, including a man named Tom Lines, who saw it through binoculars, briefly, and noted its covering of hair which hung long off the arms. Upon being questioned, he said he was quite confident that it was not a human. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our show. I haven't spent much time yet on Bigfoot footprints and the plaster casts made from these footprints, but it is important to mention that the study of these prints and the plaster casts made of them and made of the hands, knuckles, buttocks, and other body parts that have left prints in soft ground is widespread and serious and well-documented. They are not human, these prints, and considering the places and positions in which they are found, once you study them, lend a definite credibility to the belief in the existence of a yet undiscovered primate. A Bigfoot slips a little, going up a slick incline, and his knuckles make a print in the ground as he checks his fall. He sits on soft ground, and his buttocks and the backs of his thighs make a definite imprint. And as he sits, the back of his foot is pushed into some soft soil, and he leaves a print of his hairy heel and Achilles tendon. All these prints and plaster casts are impressive, and they're studied to the last detail, a detail which might even show a healed scar on the bottom of one foot, or a variance of ridge lines along the sole of one foot, and every square inch of the flesh on the underside shows the structure of the skin and its detail. Hair particles are removed from other casts and studied for DNA. The footprints aren't just one-size-fits-all prints that show no arches or variations, especially when one of these creatures looks back over his shoulder, causing a variance in the weight distribution onto the sole of his foot. These prints appear real, and quite different from each other. But no matter how anatomically correct the casts are, they're still only suggestive of the presence of a large primate, leaving us to ask, where's the DNA? And what is that telling us? There's a problem there. Hair samples are turned in, found in different places, like in nests created by Bigfoots by bending saplings over, or being found in plaster casts made of the prints. First the hair is analyzed to see what creature it belonged to. It might match a bear, a deer, a coyote, or a human. But then there are the ones that do not match any known species. And these hairs are different. So how do you classify them? You don't, other than labeling them as unknown primate or unknown animal. And that'll be the same with regard to DNA. We won't know until we have a Bigfoot carcass to work with. Then what about fossils, you might ask? For some reason, ape bones are hard to find. The forest floors have a way of breaking down the bones fast. The acidic soil content makes most animal bones disappear in short time. Even in Africa, in places where chimpanzees or apes have frequented for millenniums, fossilized remains are hard to find. We do know that they're never spotted in areas that are not forested heavily. They are never seen near cities. They prefer to stay as far away from human activity as possible. In North America, they're seen primarily in the northwest wilderness areas. However, 
Smaller versions are seen in the southeast and Florida, where they're called skunk apes. And we did an episode on them a couple years ago. Many researchers today believe that Bigfoot may be a species of ape thought to be long extinct. We know there was once a large ape that roamed Africa called Gigantopithecus. He was bipedal, stood 10 feet tall, and weighed up to 1,000 pounds. How do we know? A few teeth and a part of a jaw were found by paleontologist Ralph von Koenigswald in the 1930s in or near Hong Kong. Since then, two more jaw bones and a few handfuls of teeth were discovered, all in parts of Asia. In 1998, Dr. Chris Stringer of the British Museum of Natural History acknowledged that the legend of the Yeti, or abominable snowman, which comes to us from the Himalayas, may have been inspired by surviving populations of Gigantopithecus. Since then, other experts, one in particular being Canadian author and Sasquatch expert John Green, have extended that reasoning to say that Sasquatch may have traveled across the Siberian Straits at the onset of the last ice age, along the same path as humans. For all things Bigfoot, including a place to report your sighting of a Bigfoot, there is the BFRO, or Bigfoot Field Research Organization. They do a good job of documenting and classifying reports, and when those reports reach the level that requires the sending of experts, they send them. They do their best to maintain respectability in an area of study where misidentifications are commonplace and where skepticism runs high. But with an ever-growing file of footprints and data, it's getting very difficult to fool the experts. Early in this story, we promised to tell you the Ray Wallace hoax story. Wallace was a contractor on the Bluff Creek Road job in Humboldt City, California, which was a lumber operation requiring caterpillar operators and other specialized workmen. And if Bluff Creek sounds familiar to you, that's because it was in the Bluff Creek area that Patterson and Gimlin came upon their creature in 1967. Ray Wallace was a colorful character and known as a prankster. If the Bigfoot snafu that developed there in Humboldt County was a hoax, and it likely was, Wallace was the likely contender. The local sheriff thought as much and told him, but Wallace had an alibi. The night the huge tracks were left, Wallace was conveniently out of the region at another job site. It does bear mentioning, however, that he also conveniently had a brother named Wilbur, who worked at the Bluff Creek site with him, and was a foreman there. When Wallace returned, the story had hit the papers. Fifteen men had walked off their jobs, not wanting to come face to face with whoever belonged to those 16-inch tracks. But there was more left than just the tracks. Heavy equipment had been moved around, including 50-gallon drums of diesel fuel, 700-pound spare tires, large, large steel culverts, all tossed about like toys. This was reported by the foreman, Wallace's brother, Shorty. So again, everyone figured that Shorty had come there at night and done this. But some were thinking this was way beyond a practical joke. Some of the local guys started looking into it to see if the tracks were legit. One of these men was named Ed Patrick, the other Bob Titmus. Patrick would later say that the large steel culverts were delivered to the site in fours, bundled with heavy-gauge wire cable about three-sixteenths of an inch thick. When the cable was cut loose, it was coiled up and bundled, weighing over 100 pounds, and left lying until it could be hauled away. Patrick and Titmus were looking for signs of tracks up in the mountainside when they came upon one of those unwieldy bundles of cable, which had been carried a considerable distance up the mountain through trees and brush. This was all off-road. They were amazed. Even if someone could have done it, and that was doubtful, 
Why would they do it? And why would the Wallace brothers sabotage their own operation? Some thought maybe Wallace had done it to scare away thieves from the site. But in truth, there was a camp at the site, and it was almost always occupied by a few men. And you had to cross through the camp to get into the construction area. Thieves would think twice about messing with someone's rig. And if the tracks were put there to scare the thieves, why not share that fact with the crew? When Wallace returned from his other job, the men confronted him, along with the sheriff. Wallace acted hurt and angry. "'Who knows anyone foolish enough to ruin his own business, man?' he said. "'I've got three tractors sitting up there without operators, and the brush-cutting crew has all quit. It just doesn't make sense.' "'Ah, but maybe it did make sense.' Lauren Coleman, author of books on cryptozoology, suggested that Wallace might have staged all this to create an excuse as to why he couldn't fulfill his contract. The work had fallen behind schedule, and if Wallace could show that he couldn't keep a full crew on site, maybe he could get an extension. But in the end, that wasn't what happened. The Wallace brothers abandoned the contract and reported they lost a great deal of money. Ray later claimed a $40,000 loss. So what was Wallace's motive? "'assuming that the tracks were a hoax. "'Author Coleman writes that a letter written by Wallace "'explains that when bear hunters with hounds "'began hunting for the creature, "'Wallace became concerned for Bigfoot's welfare. "'He told hunters that he had made those tracks, "'and they said, "'Okay, show us how you did it.' "'Wallace had no answer originally, "'but the next day he paid a woodworker $50 "'for a pair of 16-inch feet, "'and when they were done, he showed them to the hunters. "'They reported him to the sheriff.' And a final note, in that same letter, Wallace goes on to say that he was himself eager to follow Bigfoot to the lost gold mines that he claimed Bigfoot guarded. Wallace lived another 40 years and participated as a fringe member of the Bigfoot community, never accepted, but a member. According to a Seattle Times reporter, Wallace's family wanted to come clean after his death and admitted that Wallace had faked the tracks himself. They also claimed that he had laid down tracks through the Northwest with numerous sets of feet during his travels. He even paid his nephews to do the same. It was all just good family fun, they said. To follow up, the carved feet that Wallace used have been photographed, along with plaster casts of those footprints, and they've been studied and analyzed thoroughly by a number of leading authorities, and they're easily shown to be fakes to the experienced eye. Which begs the question, which came first, Ray Wallace or Sasquatch? That's actually not hard to answer, as the Sasquatch legend has been around for hundreds of years. And today, Sasquatch has become a part of the North American culture. Bigfoot and Sasquatch are seen as symbols on monster trucks and logos of hockey teams. And the Bigfoot image can be seen on any number of wearable or consumable items. As with UFOs, witnesses are no longer as hesitant to come forward and turn in detailed reports of what they saw as they were in the past. Scientists no longer see the existence of an unknown primate as impossible. Today it's both plausible and probable, just not proven, and that will take a body. We'll see. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Be sure to catch our other shows, especially our story, A Study in Scarlet, at 1001 Stories for the Road. We're getting close to wrapping that one up, it's a Sherlock Holmes adventure with two very different parts, and I found it to be a great mystery. It begins in London, where a murder has taken place, and Holmes and Watson are asked to assist Scotland Yard in the investigation. 
"'A man has been found dead with a small gold ring in his hand. "'His male assistant is also found dead in another location.'" In part two, the story begins in the American desert of all places, with an older man and a young girl, the only survivors of an Indian attack, and they are dying of thirst when they're discovered by Mormons who are emigrating toward their promised land in Utah. They're both taken back with that group into the community, although they never join the religion. And she's forced into a marriage that she doesn't want. The story gets intense from there, as the man she loves, who has promised to come and get her out of there, arrives too late and finds her dead. And he vows revenge. That story is called A Study in Scarlet. It's narrated chapter by chapter by me at 1001 Stories for the Road. Try it. We have links to that podcast and our others in the show notes here. I think you'll enjoy that story. Very well written. And it'll keep you right on the edge of your seat. Also, please visit us at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Send us a little love every month. We would appreciate that very much. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.